The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Big thanks to Steve John, who came early and did the snow blowing. It took a long time because uh, a little slushy at the bottom, but... Uh, Made it easier for some of us to get in the lot. And uh, we're continuing along with this. I find it really uh, powerful teachings, but it's also certainly at the more refined or subtle end of the Buddhist teachings where he's talking just generally, we say, abiding in emptiness. And there's something generally about what the Buddha is pointing to from his own experience. And I think it has to do with our understanding of faith. Like uh, some experiences we won't have, we won't ever realize them or have these experiences unless we make an effort. It's like we won't, you can't like get it unless you make the effort. Someone can paint a picture for you or describe it. You know, someone like the Buddha could say, oh, there's some freedom out there if you want it, you know. And it doesn't mean you've got to somehow, you don't need a different life, a different mind or body. So this uh, practice depends on us making effort without fully understanding what the fruit of that effort's going to be. You know, we have to sort of stick our neck out or attempt to develop some momentum in this present moment awareness, the stability of awareness. Because we're told that when there's enough of this calm, this collected, stable, present moment awareness, then uh, you could say, as some teachers have, that an accident happens, right? It's like the pervasiveness and continuity of our ignorance, our wrong view, falls apart, ceases, and in that moment, the mind realizes the mind, what the mind is or what this is, when there isn't that ongoing habit of projecting a sense of me, a sense of self-drama, a sense of separation. And that's the kind of accident we're waiting. So if you've been coming the last few weeks, and if you haven't, you can listen to the talks. Maybe three or four talks now have been recorded. And it's basically looking at this teaching. It's the process of awakening itself and how the Buddha describes it. And remember, by definition, really, he's describing territory our mind is not that familiar with, probably, right? I mean, we might have had some momentary experiences, but we might not in any way have been even aware that we are experiencing these experiences. I know that sounds a little funny to say it that way. But he talks about, it's really a purification of view. So the initial purification of view, or pur- the purifying moments when my the mind the mind's understanding is more pure, less clouded by 
or my conventional, the mind's conventional way of understanding, which would be, of course, in terms of self, in terms of my self-dramas, in terms of my sense of self being apart, being separate, right? So the initial insight we call a sort of an awakening to disenchantment, right? And it's a disenchantment that allows for the mind to begin to seclude itself. It's sort of a sense of, uh, yeah, really it's a kind of fear, like noticing the habit of my mind always chasing interesting experiences, always wanting some interesting experience, and some kind of disenchantment like, I don't think it's really going to make me happy. You know, you're there scrolling through the internet, but there's some disenchantment like, there's some intuition, I don't think this is going to help. Or you're, you know, eating away something, and there's some space in the mind, wisdom, like, yeah, it's, it is what it is, eating this food, tasting, chewing, whatever it is. There is some experience of gratification, right? It's not completely unpleasant, but there's some space of wisdom that understands it's not really going to make a big difference, eating or not eating this food, looking at the internet or not, right? So that's this disenchantment. It's like the mind is waking up that I'm never going to get something from sense experience that's going to extinguish the hungriness, the thirstiness, the uneasiness of my heart. And that's the basic, more gross level of delusion, thinking that there's some combination of sense experience that when I get it, when I have it, or when I get rid of what I don't want, then I'll finally be somewhere like heaven or utopia or whatever, however we might describe that place to ourselves, and then I'll be done. Ah. You know, we always have something. And we look clearly, we realize that's really not going to make a big difference. Like for me, like one of my obsessions I often mention is having that perfect cabin, you know, or whatever it might be, getting my home together getting my to-do list down to a manageable size, really getting to the bottom of what's not working in my relationships or my relationship with my partner or my relationship with my cat or my, you know, it's like fixing something, then I'll be able to, you know, then I'll be at ease. If I finally got a decent exercise regimen and eating regimen and really committed to it, then... So we have any number of scenarios, and whenever we see through one of the scenarios, we've got another scenario. Well, no, yeah, that's, that's, I'm just kidding myself. But this, when I get my meditation practice together, then I'll be done. When I finally understand what the Buddha's talking about, then I'll be done. When I finally make amends to all those people I did stupid things to in the past, or mean things to in the past, then I'll be done. When I finally wake up and get on top of what it is to be a white male, a white straight male, right, and really own that, then I'll be done. So, see, a lot of these good things in terms of this conventional level of, you know, becoming a more skillful human being, it's not like we shouldn't address them. 
It's just that we shouldn't address it from a point of view of delusion, thinking that somebody's going to be saved. That's what I was talking about er at the beginning when I generosity. Like we do these things, we do our work of taking care of our relationships, becoming a more generous human being, committing to sort of healing all of the ways suffering, oppression happens in our society. Not because we have to, not because we're going to be saved, but because it's, in a funny way, it's a joy to engage these messy places in our life. And it's suffering to believe that, oh, it's too much. It's too messy. Can't do it. So the first level of that we call the happiness of seclusion or the happiness of disenchantment. And remember, it's all about this, one of the things the Buddha said, but this is just basic human common sense. But the Buddha said it way back when, 2,500 years ago. You know, a, This is a rough paraphrase. A wise person would happily let go of a lesser happiness in order to open to a more substantial or more resonant happiness. Isn't that true? You know, we're happy to put down this. Oh, you're going to have that for lunch, but there's this. Oh, yeah, I'm happy to let go of my, you know, whatever, cold oatmeal, as substantial as that might be, you know, for this, you know, grilled portobello mushrooms with Swiss cheese and arugula. (laughs) (laughs) Or whatever, you know, rocks your boat. I've never had that, by the way. Just <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds kind of good. <laughs> so it's, it's the same, too. It's like there is something juicy about being an ordinary human being, hungrily searching for nice sense experiences. Some, it's irritating. It's, there's a restless unpleasantness to it. But there's always a possibility of g- getting fed by getting some nice s- sense experience. At least temporarily, it feels good, right? And then, of course, we'll need it, it's not going to take care of us for long, but we're just hoping we can line up and be successful at enough with enough interesting, pleasant sense experience and enough avoiding of the unpleasant sense experience to have what we call ordinary misery, you know, ordinary happiness, like good enough happiness. And then somebody comes around and basically paints a picture of a happiness that is a being free of that hungry pursuit of interesting, pleasant sense experiences. And it's like, oh, there's just so much more space, so much more calm, so much more tranquility, so much more a sense of the heart being unburdened in that sort of general arena of happiness than this other arena of happiness. And then we're, we'll start to gravitate. And as that matures, there's a whole like another set. It's not like it's completely distinct from what we call seclusion or disenchantment, but this is this category in Buddhism we call dispassion. And it's, it's just the maturing. So in this place, the distinction is, now the mind has, has got some actual competence at finding this other 
more refined, more resonant kind of happiness. It basically, like what is karma? Karma just means the mind has a sense of how things work, cause and effect or the conditional or lawful nature. So even if we're in the pursuit of really gross levels of happiness like having lots of money, having lots of friends, having lots of stuff, right? That's also lawful. I mean, there are, there are ways like where somebody might really want that sort of grosser level of ordinary happiness, but they don't understand like the actual causes for becoming wealthy, becoming popular, becoming whatever you know they want, beautiful or physically beautiful, whatever it is that somebody might want. There are ways that actually lead there, ways of participating in your life that actually, not, not guaranteed, but probabilistically lead there, right? And ways that, like wanting it is definitely not a cause for actually getting that stuff, right? All it does is makes you tight. But there are some actual lawful things that you can do that will increase the probability of you becoming more beautiful, more popular, more wealthy, more whatever. So even at that so-called non-spiritual end of this equation of happiness, it's lawful. And then, so it would be good to understand the lawful nature of our existence regardless of what gross level of happiness you're pursuing or more refined and resonant level of happiness you're pursuing. It's still useful to understand we live in a lawful universe and whatever it is you want, you want to be king of the hill? Well, at least you should understand what makes somebody king of the hill. You know, Sitting around and complaining about kids being bigger than you, that doesn't make you king of the hill. Like learning how to take advantage that you're smaller than the big kids, you know, and so I guess I got to be sneakier, you know. You Then you're starting to understand like how to get to be king of the hill. But when you start to get bored and realize the limitations of being king of the hill, like there's always somebody who wants to knock you off, you might pursue another kind of happiness, like the happiness of not needing to be king of the hill. It's like, haven't you seen that? Like in high school, you know, whatever it was, having a lot of muscles or being beautiful or being popular or being funny. or all, It's like maybe some of you in this room, you know, we had that little crack in the sort of delusion that most of us live with that where we had the scent of a happiness of not needing to be popular. Not the happiness of not being popular, the happiness of not needing to be popular, which, funny, sort of turns out to make you popular, right? But it's not because you need to be popular. That's a, there's a particular kind of happiness about not needing the attention of other people. But does it mean you're against people liking you or seeing you as a cool person or whatever it is? So that's that first level of happiness where we see the limitations of whatever the mind is dependent on as a being in the middle of this chaos and this not being in control. And we start to see and sense the happiness of disenchantment with the rat race. And we see it all. So we, we all know this happiness to some degree. You might not have sort of 
uh, distilled it and organized it where you can really point to these experiences in your life, that probably now, as you understand it better intellectually, you can reorganize your life story about little experiences or big experiences where you realized, I could do that, but I don't have to do that. And it feels really nice to let that go, to let go of needing to do that or be that, become that. So then I might do it anyway, but I don't need to do it. It's like in athletics, you know, I I was a a pretty serious athlete in high school and a little bit in college, but I kind of lost, I I sort of lost this, you know, in high school. uh, Up until junior year, I really wanted to succeed. I was a runner, a cross-country and track runner. And uh, and I was pretty good, you know, for a high school athlete. And uh, I really wanted to win. And then I just, at some point junior year, I, I just sort of saw the painting on the wall, like, yeah, you work really hard. You really want this. And then even if you get it, you just really work hard at getting something else. And it just started to seem absurd. Like, I couldn't see where this ended. Like, where does this end? And then it, my mind, because I have kind of a, a mind that just wants to generalize. Like, well, oh my God, it's the same with academics. Like, wanting good grades. Or wanting to get into a good college. Or wanting to be popular. I kept seeing, like, it was the same rat race and you get something, it feels good to get that, to win the race, to get a good grade, to get into college, to be liked. But it didn't extinguish, getting something didn't extinguish the need for more. And then I started to withdraw. That's the happiness of seclusion and, and uh, renunciation and disenchantment. And then that matures as a competence of dispassion, right? So where the mind is now intelligently pursuing that happiness. It has studied, in terms of our own heart and mind, our own experiences, what are the causes for that happiness of non-attachment. Right? Like this, is, we do, this is kind of what we do a lot in our formal meditation practice. We're sitting there and we're studying, we're contemplating the happiness of non-attachment. We call it mindful awareness, right? But what is mindful awareness? Well, it's being intimate without attachment, without judgment, without trying to make something happen. So what we get from a good set isn't because we, I, wanted to make something happen because clearly that gets burnt out of us. Maybe not in the first decade of meditation, but hopefully by the third or fourth decade. I'm year 36 now or 37. And... uh, yeah, I see this more and more getting burnt out of my practice. Like, it doesn't work to try to get something from your meditation. But trying to get something from your meditation teaches the mind something invaluable. Craving hurts. Craving hurts. Craving, this is, you know, the Buddha said it 2,600 years ago, but it doesn't matter that he said it. We have to realize it directly. The cause of suffering is this attachment to desire, what we call craving. So craving is different than desire. Desire is just inevitable. As long as you're alive, there's going to be desire. There's nothing wrong with desire. But misunderstanding desire, which we call attachment to desire, craving, is the cause for suffering. 
So we can learn to be intimate, right in the middle, awake, clear, relaxed, tranquil, seeing. What are we going to see? We're going to see desire. The desire to move, the desire to be warmer or cooler, the desire for the sit to be over, desire for something interesting to happen because the breath is boring or sensations are boring. There's all kinds of desires that arise in our meditations. But we're learning to be right in the middle and realize that's just desiring being known. We see desire without attachment in the same way. That's hard, right? It's not our habit to see desire without attachment. Our habit is to see desire and to take it personally. But we can train the mind like we start with the breath. We feel the sensations of breathing in and we practice seeing that without judging it, without interpreting it as I'm breathing in. It's just those sensations being known or the breath going out. Oh, those just sensations being known or a sound. That's just hearing being known. Well, then when we get something that seems more personal, like a desire to move my body because my knee hurts, we can see that desire is just something being known. Desire for the sit to be over, that's just a, that thought being known. And this is that area of dispassion where we really start to get a sense. It's like dispassion really is like a new pathway, a new way, a new uh, um, aspiration to be in allegiance with. So normally what we're in allegiance with is getting everything we want. We have some vision, some idea of me with everything I want and nothing that I don't want. And that's kind of motivating for most human beings most of our time, right? That's our basic. And so for some people, it's a really refined vision, like me in some utopian place where everybody gets along and there's no oppression or something like that. Other people, it's just being the top of the heap. But whatever the story is, it's about getting something and getting rid of something. And then we realize that's eternally frustrating, even if it's a very refined vision of attainment. And it's like withdrawing, renouncing, dispassion, and we're pursuing another kind. Now, a lot of what we see in this middle place is like we develop some momentum in this competence when we're in a relatively retreated place. It's not so easy to learn it when we're in the middle of a lot of duties and responsibilities, talking, doing things out in the world. So that's why the form of sitting meditation is very symbolic of just letting go of our engagement. But ultimately, that's not what it's about, but it's a really good place to learn about letting go of the attachment to desire, right? Letting go, letting things just happen. And then when we're done with our sit with this passion, then then we get to practice letting go of attachment to desire. But now you have to act in the world. You're not sitting anymore. You're not in your meditation. You've got a job to do. You've got a relationship to take care of. You've got things that move your heart, that move compassion in you and you want to respond to appropriately. But but you take that dispassion on the road like you engage, but not with attachment, but with dispassion. So then you're really integrating the dispassion as a not just something you do in the quiet of your meditation, but actually you see it functional. 
So then this really builds the momentum, the deepening of that value of dispassion. So it starts out as an ego project, right? I want to be happy. I become pretty frustrated constantly pursuing stuff that will make me happy and avoiding stuff that cause me unhappiness. And I just want to put down the load. And so I've made a science of it, an art and a science of like how to be a human being with relationships, with a body, with a life, but with this passion. So I'm kind of letting life live through me now. And then that understanding matures. And then the third level, really, again, it's, it's not like separate places. It's just the maturing of the insight into emptiness. The mind is beginning to be empty of the ignorant pursuit of attachment to our desires. Right? If that's what the mind is learning to be empty of, the ignorant pursuit, the ignorant idea that desire should be identified with and acted out. And so this last category we call cessation. So often when you read the discourses, when the person is going to have the same awakening that the Buddha himself had, the Buddha talks about it as you know, the deepening insight of renunciation, disenchantment, seclusion. These are different words that are used then the maturing into the insight in, of dispassion. And then here it's cessation or relinquishment or the insight of letting go. So it's like where the mind, right? There's a mind here, whatever it is. It's kind of a mystery, but there's a mind, a knowing. And when that knowing, when that awareness knows the mind without any selfing, see here there's still some selfing like the self thinking like the ticket is non-attachment. That's still a self-project, isn't it? You know, like I've got some intelligence here. Attachment doesn't seem hasn't seemed to work. I'm really into non-attachment. I'm really learning how to be a human being with non-attachment because it works for me. So it's still a self-project. But now it's a self that has a spiritual practice, right? We give it a name. Instead of like a worldly pursuit, which is more over here. This self has a spiritual pursuit, still a self-project. And then at some points, and it's just like a temporary, and it's always, mis- it's always surprising that selfing drops away. Still the same activity in a way, like, because now this project of dispassion, of non-attachment, has some momentum in the personality. And you know what? The personality has always been an impersonal or natural process. It's never been a self that's always been a mistaken projection on the natural process. So the insight over here is the mind seeing things as they are, right? That's what we say in Buddhism a lot. Oh, you wake up to the way it is or you see things as they are. But here in a more specific way, we call it a moment of cessation where the mind is realizing the mind absence of any kind of eye-making or mind-making or selfing. And it's like in some Buddhist descriptions, it's almost like they describe it as a different reality. And I think, I don't know if that's how useful that is. I think any articulation is problematic. But what we have to understand is the self 
the idea of self, of separation being in the center of things, it's so pervasive that the mind not doing that is going to be shocking initially. And as Guy Armstrong talks about in chapter 13, those of you who are reading along in this complimentary text, Guy Armstrong's book on Emptiness, A Practical Guide for Meditators, really great book, came out about a year ago. He talks about that it's the rubbing up, you know, the way we talk about it in Buddhism is one mind moment after another. So in a sense, reality exists for a moment. And in order for the next moment to come, that moment of reality has to go away and then there's another. So there's a moment of non-selfing, like in deep sleep, but there's no, right, the mind is shut down. So there's no moment before and after. Like we're not really... Awareness isn't there to notice what it's like. Let's say, I think psychologists at least, scientists, neuroscientists, think that in deep sleep there's no selfing going on, right? That activity of imagining, constructing a sense of me that's having experience, right? That ceases when we're, perhaps at least, in deep sleep. Well, in a way that cessation is something a little bit similar maybe, where... But now with in the space of clear, relaxed, non-judging, stable presence, that habit of constructing a me who's doing, a me who wants, a me who is, right? It just ceases. That the mind, that activity of mind, it's just an ongoing activity. Each moment of selfing triggers the next moment of selfing, right? It's it's the water we've been swimming in so long that we don't realize we're swimming in it because the mind just is in this deep, deep habit of selfing, of projecting a sense of a me, a mind, who's doing, who's having an experience. But because of the development of the momentum of dispassion, of non-attachment, the sort of foundation of that habit has been eroding. And as it erodes more and more, there are going to be moments of non-selfing because the foundation is getting unstable of that habit, the foundation of that habit of selfing. And then that will be like a shocking moment. And it, it will be maybe in some ways disconcerting, but in some ways have an unmistakable flavor of freedom, the peace of a mind that doesn't have to bother with selfing. And it's shocking only because the mind doesn't remember that kind of moment. It has a little bit of intuition from things like deep sleep, right? But it doesn't have a clear sense like it just had, right? So then, like I often joke, you know, after that we tend to want to talk about it. But we'll always end up talking about it in a self point of view. Because right? th- we're back in this more ordinary reality where that habit still has enough of a foundation to keep itself going. But if we keep following this spiritual intuition, like over here it's spiritual exhaustion. The Pali phrase is samvega. Like oh, chasing my tail. You know, always looking for another, always needing more, always afraid of what's around the corner. And just how that self-protection, self-need, pursuing that is exhausting. That's why often our 
stories of saints or people who are really generous and fearless and can live for the benefit, you know, saving all beings or, you know, being a great altruistic person. Because that, those stories remind us, it's, it's like, oh, that would be so nice to be that kind of person because we sense their freedom from self-absorption, right? They're like not afraid to just do what's right, what's good, without regard. It's not like they don't feed themselves or clothe themselves, but they don't see that as an end that has no end, <laughs> you know? Like there's always a bigger house we could have or a you know, nicer body or clearer mind and then we're always in fear of those things going away. Some of you, maybe you, you haven't, but if one of our longtime teachers here at the center, he doesn't live in Minnesota, but he's been coming for years, Steve Armstrong, a really important teacher to many of us, and somebody I've been able to teach with re- more recently in the last five or six years, but an important teacher of mine. And Steve lives when he's not teaching in Hawaii, and he has that really aggressive brain cancer, the geoblastoma type, and just diagnosed maybe six weeks ago. And uh, you can read, he's you know just being a, a really powerful Dharma teacher, he's not easily writing, journaling on the Caring Bridge website. So if you search for Steve Armstrong, you'll be able to get it. And uh, just because he knows his mind so well, and unfortunately the cancer is right at his language center, so he doesn't have good use of language, but his friends are helping him edit his postings. And just bringing a lot of equanimity, a lot of this trusting dispassion, right? And moments of cessation. And that really allows the heart to be relaxed and not dependent on the particular circumstances or conditions. Because as we move along this spectrum, from way over here, of course, is thinking that happiness is about getting, you know, the attaining something, getting somewhere, so some self-project, to suspicion about that. So that's the beginning of that intuition, disenchantment, a more articulate, comprehensive intelligence around letting go, right? cause and effect of letting go, really following, tracing that happiness of non-attachment, really orienting our life. So this is a new allegiance, orienting our life around non-attachment as what's really going to save me in the end. right? So it's still a self-project, but it's a spiritual self-project. And then that erodes a foundation we didn't even realize was there because we're not feeding the old foundation of selfing. It's still there, it's still got momentum, but we're not feeding it, we're not reinforcing it. And so it does what everything does when it's not being reinforced. It starts to fall apart through non-use. starts to get weaker through non-use. And then these moments are always, you know, when you talk to the wise teachers in our traditions, spiritual tradition, they always talk about this in an almost accidental way. You can't make these insights happen. They happen because we've done this other work of really changing our allegiance from getting things and getting rid of things to living our life with less attachment, more space of equanimity, really 
seeing that that calm of equanimity, oh, it's just the way it is. A lot of snow in the middle of April. You know, it's like, why get all wrapped up? Just do what needs to be done, right? And it's just like, oh yeah, I trust that happiness so much more than I gotta gotta move out of Minnesota. You know, this is just this is not okay. And when I'm seventy, this is gonna be a problem. You know, or whatever. So I'll, I'll leave it here, and we'll be moving on to chapter 14 for those who are reading along with us next week. But we have time for just maybe one comment today before we end the No Children's programs this morning. Anybody have a comment from your own practice you'd like to share with the group? Some insights? Yeah, please, Jean. Want to pass it over to her? But th- we're recording this morning, too. I'm Jean. Is this on? Mm-hmm, okay. So. All right. Um, I, this was just the perfect talk. I didn't think I was going to be able to make it today, and I was happy I was able to. And I kind of have reached a point in the last few months where, you know, I've been struggling for 13 years to raise two children on my own and start my own business here in Minnesota. And I kind of got to a point where, like, wow, I'm good. My kids are 13. They're kind of doing okay right now. And my business is solid. And I'm kind of... It's really a kind of a now what? I mean, I sort of had an existential crisis of I'm everything's smooth and solid and fine, and then I have this fear it's all going to go away. And so um, your talk today was really great, and I mean, maybe you have some suggestions for I mean, what, what happens when you get to this point? And I mean, that's maybe a 10-hour yeah. conversation, but... But don't, I don't pathologize know, just, that anxiety, you know, that you mentioned, because that's really, like, this is the one advantage of the privilege of having our act together well enough is that the, exactly the insight that Jean points to, and it's a real insight. We got you know those moments when life seems workable, and then the insight creeps in in, that, in the form of anxiety like there's still no ground here. I mean, basically, it's some version of that realization there's still no ground here. This isn't good enough. And then that's that shift where we realize, is there another allegiance to getting, you know, I can try to get my life, like make my 13-year-olds even more together, which will, of course, backfire, or, you know, or the job, the business, you know, even more secure. And that might backfire too. But but the thing is, there are these limiting, limited returns to more effort in these kind of conventional ways. And with that privilege of not being overwhelmed by the details of life, and it's a real privilege because a lot of people in poverty or in oppressed situations, they don't have this privilege to kind of come up above the water. They're drowning, you know, because they're poor or because they're being oppressed or they have chronic illness or whatever it might be, live in a war zone. But human beings that can come above the surface and they're not drowning for moments and they look around and go, where where is real safety? And 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 the thing is, the only thing that brings integrity to that question ha- is having an honest relationship with that anxiety. That's why, like in in Buddhism, there is this a, a strong request, invitation to contemplate death, because when you got your act together, it's one of the few things 
that keeps you close to anxiety, the, the sort of ground, the truth of groundlessness, right? We need that because it, uh, it allows the mind to be curious about where real safety lies. And it's not in attainment, it's in letting go. And so then you can begin, no, we're not an expert when we start, let, we start exploring letting go, the letting go of non-attachment. So remember, it's like baby steps. Do little things without attachment and see how it works for you. You know, like there's an issue at home with your family that has to be decided and you really want to get it right. Well, just explore doing that without attachment or a big decision in your business, you know. And you might just realize that it can be trusted, that actually you can still be a responsible human being, an engaged human being, a compassionate, even fiercely compassionate human being, but without attachment, without fear of getting it right. We might even be even more powerful in our engagement without the attachment. Because we over here we mistakenly think think that attachment is synonymous with engagement. And what we really realize here, this as the maturing of this insight of dispassion, is that as a engaged, competent, ordinary human being, like ordinarily in ordinary in relationship and solving the problems of life, we're more competent without attachment. Without caring in that attached way. In a sense we care even we're allowed to care even more we care so much we're willing to drop the fear and attachment and just do what can be done and let go of what can't be done. Because we care, right? we drop attachment. So that's the edge for you. Because you care, see if letting go of attachment allows you to be a better parent, a, letter, a better activist, a better you know, uh, person in your profession. Right? You're a lawyer, right? Yeah, which in, in serving the people who need legal services. So, yeah, it's a good time to be fearless. <laughs> Thanks, Jean. That's a good place to end. So we'll just take a few seconds, just time for a breath or two together before we end our time. Enjoy the quiet for a few seconds. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.